Last week, I mentioned how the Gospel of Matthew is organized around five chunks or teaching sections to correspond to the five books of Moses. And we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, which is that first big chunk. Well, today's reading is from the last big section of teaching, and it's uh, a parable in the midst of a series of parables. And my hunch is you may have heard this one before. Jesus says, For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I've made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You've been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I've made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You've been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As far as I know, Sunday schools do not assign homework or give grades. But if we did... You should give yourself extra credit if you know that when the Gospels first got written down, there were no numbers of chapters and verses. Do you know that? You get, you get extra credit if you know that. And give yourself even more extra credit if you know that not only were there no numberings, but the words were all run together. There were no spaces between words and no breaks between sentences. It was all just crammed together. And because of that, no punctuation either. None. So when the translators got around to writing these down and translating them, they thought it would be convenient to add all of those things. And when you think about the punctuation, it's kind of interesting to flip through any of the Gospels, but in this case Matthew, and look at the punctuation. Sermon on the Mount, for instance, that we looked at last week. Most of the time, the sentences of Jesus end with a period because he wasn't a televangelist, you know, screaming like some used car salesman all the time. He didn't preach with exclamation points at every point. So he'll say things like, consider the lilies of the field. They don't worry. That's a period kind of sentence, right? 
Sometimes, though, an exclamation point is needed. Like in that same sermon when he says, beware of practicing your piety in front of others just so you'll get noticed. Exclamation point. And then there are those times when he asks questions. Like the time Jesus said, what what would it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose their soul? Question mark. The parables of Jesus rarely ask questions per se, but they always imply a question. Contrary to whatever Sunday school lesson you may have heard along the way, I remember this one where they said, now the parables, the parables kids, were simple stories Jesus told so that everybody could understand. Eh, wrong. No, the parables of Jesus are incredibly complex riddles. They leave you scratching your head. They always imply a question. Like in the middle of the Gospel of Matthew, he says that the kingdom of God, it's like this. It's like a woman baking bread who takes three measures of flour and adds some yeast. Any questions? Uh, Yeah. Like, what's that supposed to mean? I mean, if it says something about God, what does it say? You have to figure that out. That's how the parables work. In this one, it doesn't seem like on the surface there are any questions. I mean, maybe you have some. It's pretty straightforward. Man is going on a journey and trusts talents to his servants, slaves. He gives this one five, this one two, this one one. The first two, they double it. Third one, well, you heard it. He hides it in the ground. So the master takes it away from him, gives it to the one who has ten, now eleven, and that's it. Any questions? Well, I mean, in the history of the church, some people have used this parable on Sundays like this, recognition of service, to say something about what we do with our talents in serving God. And some churches, I don't know if our congregation's ever done this, they'll even use a survey. Maybe electronically, maybe at the door. You you fill it out, turn it back in, and it'll say things like, do you like working with kids? Do you play a musical instrument? You know, those kind of questions. And then they match you up with ministries in the church. And if your talent is origami, they'll have you folding bulletins in the shape of little birds or something like that. The parable of the talents. There it is. Use your talent. But there's a saying in New Testament studies. If you think you've understood a parable, you haven't. Because as it turns out, scholars started asking questions like, for instance, what do you do with this little footnote? Most translations have a little footnote at the bottom of the page and it says something like this. Now, a talent was a unit of money. Huh. So this is not about, do you have a gift for shaking hands at the door or folding bulletins or doing micamish? This is not about talent. This is about money. And then it gets more complicated. In the late 80s, early 90s, some scholars asked what I would consider mind-blowing questions. Like, what makes us think that the master in this parable is God in the first place? And why a capitalist reading of an ancient Near Eastern document? What kind of God expects a return in the marketplace as a sign of faithfulness and who then takes from the rich to give to the poor. Huh. You you see what I mean? Good questions, right? Well, 
the reason that our default is to interpret the master as God is because in some parables, that's what the master is. But not in this one. I mean, how could it be? He's, he's described as harsh, reaping where he does not sow. Not only that, but in the ancient world, people understood that we live in a limited goods society. They understood there's only so much to go around. And they understood that if if somebody was prospering, somebody else was suffering within the village. But if you tell that to our generation and culture, if you say to people, you you realize that if we use too much water, somebody else won't have enough, they'll just laugh at you and they'll say, oh, no, no, there's limitless water. But first century people understood this. And then there's one other little clue. In the Gospels, when Jesus tells parables, very common, there's what's called the principle of three. It's the last one who's going to be the kicker. It's the same in jokes. You know, jokes work on the principle of three. An Irishman, a Scotsman, and a a, a Brit go into a bar. Well, you know, whoever's last, that's where the punchline's going to be. And it happens in parables too. A priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. It's always going to be the third that's the clincher. What if... This master is not God, but just that, a master, a harsh master. And what he wants is return on his profit. And if you do that, if you go along with the system, well, guess what? You enter into the joy of the master. It's the master's joy. But what if the third one is the hero of the story? What if he says, I'm not going along with this system here? Have what is yours. There's pretty good indication that that's the interpretation Matthew intended. That in this parable, he shows us, here is how the masters of the world judge. And then he tells one more parable. Remember I told you that this is in a series of parables. The next parable is the parable of the sheep and the goats. And it starts with when the Son of Man comes in His glory and He'll divide people into the sheep and the goats. And maybe you remember, He says to the one group, well, you know, you you visited me when I was in prison and you fed me when I was uh, hungry and you clothed me. And they go, Lord, what? And they're divided by how they served the least. Now, there's an interesting word missing. Remember, they didn't have chapters and verses and it was all crammed together. We're not supposed to stop at places. Because that second parable, the word but is missing. It's in the Greek. But when the Son of Man returns. In other words, if this first parable is about the ways of the world, the second one is about the ways of God. When the Son of Man returns, here will be the judgment. Not how much money have you made, but how have you cared for the least. I love how when the sheep and the goats parable is told, both groups, the ones who served and the ones who didn't, they go, Lord, we, ne- we never saw you doing that. Even the ones who served, they go, no, 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 we, we never saw you, Lord. We were just making sheet cakes for Micah ministry. We were just passing out bulletins. We were just folding things. We were just saying a blessing. We were just helping transition with single moms. We were just helping refugees. We didn't see you in any bread line, Lord. And yet, in serving, we serve God. Even if it goes unnoticed. And let's face it, 
except for one Sunday a year with some cake and coffee, it, it, it can go unnoticed. 25 years ago, something like that, my wife volunteered to do child care for a church-wide retreat in the Ozarks. A couple hundred people were going. They were going to do, you know, retreat stuff down at the conference center. They were going to play on the lake, and they were going to toss the horseshoes, take a nap, play with the kids, and then they were going to have services in the morning and in the evening in the chapel. Well, the parents didn't want to have their kids in the services. This would be a break. And so she said, I'll do child care. And she volunteered for the toddlers. Turns out I volunteered as well. I didn't know I volunteered. But on the drive down, it found out, oh, guess what? We're watching the toddlers. Two to four-year-olds during the worship services. I would estimate there were something like 3,000 of them. Maybe closer to 20, but, you know, it felt like 3,000. And there was a morning service and an evening service, and I would estimate that each service lasted about two and a half, three hours, something like that. I mean, I could not believe how long worship lasted when you're watching toddlers. And we we sent a search party. People in the next room, we said, do you have an extra worker? Go and find out what's going on. And they'd come back and they'd say, yeah, he's still preaching. He's still preaching? Are you kidding? Does he not know what's going on down here? I, I remember this because I've told it to my classes ever since. That sermons don't have to be long. And that somebody's in there watching the toddlers while you're preaching. And if you were watching the toddlers, maybe your sermons wouldn't be so long. But the more valuable lesson was that I realized that for every preacher behind a pulpit, there are hundreds of people doing things often behind the scenes. And so we recognize that this day. I don't know if you know the tradition about the cathedral in France, Chartres, Notre Dame de Chartres. It's considered one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. Beautiful, gorgeous, stained glass, stone, etc. And it's been rebuilt five or six times. It burned down and they would rebuild it. There's a legend that a traveler came upon it during one of the rebuildings. And he said to this man who was cutting some rocks, you know, what, what are you doing? He says, I'm cutting stone. And he saw another man. He said, what are you doing? He says, I'm cutting timbers. Then he saw a woman on the steps and she was sweeping. He said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm I'm building a cathedral to the glory of God. Isn't that great? Can you imagine building a cathedral with a broom? 